to the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 9, and today we are talking to Zach Brock. So, before we carry on, I'm going to go on about the sponsor. So, this episode is sponsored by Shirtler. This is actually the last episode that, we're, that is going to be sponsored by Shirtler. Shirtler are a Swiss company, um, and they specialize in the amplification of string instruments, acoustic string instruments. Um, for me, Shirtler created one of the best pickups on the market when they created the StatV. That's the pickup that I use, and I've used it for about seven years. It is perfect for loud environments. Um, I know that they make the same um, the same pickup for bass. They make the same that also for viola, for cello. Um, I th- think that's it but they also they do make other things they make things for guitar they make things for mandolin um loads of stuff uh f- really for me though the, the the thing that really stands out about the stat is how it deals with loud um loud volumes so most pickups i've used for the violin they have just you know they're fine when you're quiet but then as soon as you you know as soon as you're basically louder than your violin you start to and all you can hear is the pickup it's it's not very nice to listen to but for the uh, the stat v it really is uh, something that really does emulate the sound of a an acoustic violin really quite nicely i would recommend the stat V to anybody who plays in loud environments or in a loud band ever. Okay, so let's move along. Today we are talking to Zach Brock. Zach is a, if you don't know him already, which I imagine most of you will do, Zach is a New York based violinist. Um, you may have seen him playing with. Snarky Puppy or Stanley Clark. Um, he's on, yeah, he's on most of the. Well, if you ever see a violinist playing with Snarky Puppy, like taking solos and stuff, I think that's generally him. Um, yeah, he's a really, really great player, and he he really does push the the violin um, forward in terms of jazz. I would say I think he's been doing that for quite some time, and still does. Uh, he's a really nice guy. I had we had a we've got a really long really long one today it's about two hours um he he's also got a sense of humor which is not normal for violinists most violinists are very serious um uh yeah let's do it we are well i'm recording are you recording I'm recording. Sweet. Hey, what was that? Um, 
What was that? What did you just tag me in on, on Instagram? What was that you were making? I was making a uh, pour-over. I got this cool pour-over kit. Um, I think that was my Father's Day present. Ah. And, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of cool. It's a little bit different than your average cone filter or kind of Chemex-style pour-over. It's, 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 uh, it's coffee, I can't even right? remember. The, it's coffee. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just one of the many, many ways. I still haven't actually gotten to the point where... Oh, hey, sorry. Something's just... Sorry, my... Uh... Your sruti just popped up. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Oh, that's really <laughs> funny. Two seconds. Um, tempura droid. Well, that's funny. My last, um, my last guest on this was uh, was talking a lot about using that for practice. So maybe is I'll that uh, is that the iTabla Pro thing? It's not. No, it's for. It's not. It's just like a tempura droid. It's called. Have you checked um, out iTabla Pro? Um, I used to have, I used to have, some, maybe it was that. I don't know if, was it iTabla or iTampura? Maybe maybe it's changed names now, but I did when I, when I was in college, I had this thing and you could like set it to, you could set it to like any, any like, uh, any like Tala or, you know. Was like, it an app um, or was yeah, it? Yeah, it was an uh, app, yeah. Like an actual piece of hardware? No, it was a, it was an app. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, this is an app. Um, right. This really great violinist Arun Ramamurti told me about this, um, and and also, man, I think Casey Dreesen was using it. And, right. I mean, everybody, you know, has been using this thing. It's incredible because of the. It's kind of like limitless, drone, possibilities. Plus, with you know, like every single, rhythmic pattern. Well, yeah, um, I think it's the same one I was using. I think it is. Okay. Cool. I, I yeah. don't have it on my. I don't have it anymore. You have to buy it, right? Yeah, it's quite expensive. But I, I would say of all of the apps on my phone, it's probably the one that I feel is is worth the most. Right. You know what I mean? It's. I think they did pretty incredible. Yeah. Things with it. I imagine it might have even gone up in. Well, I, mean, I imagine they'll have developed it even more since I had it. So maybe I should have a look again. Cool. Well. Um, okay. Well, it'd be good to just start with where you, um, where you started, how you started mm. playing. That'd be really, that'd be nice to hear. Sure. Well, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, which is right in the middle of Kentucky, and mm-hmm. right in the middle of the bluegrass, where mm. all the horse farms are. Um, it's about an hour south of Louisville, which was a little bit more of a cosmopolitan scene. Mm-hmm. But the university in Lexington is is quite massive. Um, and so as a result, at least during the school year, there was quite a bit of culture coming through, which, you know, made it nice. It's, it's sort of one of those classic college town scenes mm-hmm. where, um, my parents could expose me to a lot of, a lot of cool stuff that, uh, and, you know, is not readily available in other parts of, uh, Kentucky or the United States for that matter. Yeah. Um, anyway, I started playing the Suzuki method. Ah, uh, did you? The, uh huh. With a, a woman named Judy Vasic, who now lives in Perth, Australia, hmm. and uh, she was a bassist in the Lexington Philharmonic, and also was a violin teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started with her. I think you know when I was four, four-ish, something okay. like that. Yeah, that's how I started. Okay. And how did how did you find the Suzuki method? Well, I mean, I didn't know anything different. 
than that. So um, okay. to me, that was just that was just playing the violin. Um, maybe Judy introduced reading music a little bit earlier than uh, some of the strictest Suzuki method stuff. Okay. I, I think I started reading music maybe when I was. I really don't even know, maybe six or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it wasn't really, uh, a, you know, a big deal. Um, also, my mom and dad are both musicians, and my mom is a voice teacher, and my dad is a multi-instrumentalist, but mainly trumpet player. Right. So um, I also grew up singing in choirs. I did a lot of the, the Anglican uh, kind of boys' choir tradition. I, I, I did that up until my voice changed. Oh, cool. Really, really love that music and also got a lot of training in that. I did the Royal School of Church Music, uh, you know, okay. sort of voice training that, that you have to do. And there's music reading involved in that, too. So that maybe helped me out a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like you've had, like, you know, you, that must have developed your ear quite early, all of that stuff, because, like, that's what Suzuki's all about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I think that that is a a real boon for people that get into improvisation. Mm-hmm. Um it's you know, I'm sure you talk to people and I talk to people all the time that are mystified and horrified at the idea of playing a sound yeah. with your instrument without having the validation of, you know, what you're supposed to be playing there. Um and it's a real terror that takes takes yeah. hold of some some people and of course you know we know that it, you can get past it it's really kind of a mental emotional block but i think that the suzuki method and, and learning to feel comfortable with your ear and hear things and really develop the power of that um to know that you can rely on it i think is a is a really great thing yeah okay um so that's how you started playing the violin but how did you find um jazz and and everything else yeah jazz jazz for me came a bit down the road from my exploration with improvisation in general i think that i first started improvising um going to these little folk group meetings Mm. uh sessions or whatever uh, with my parents my my dad is a jazz trumpet player but when i was a kid um he was really into kind of the folk Mm. Um, you know, there's a folk scene. He was kind of coming out of the folk scene uh, when he was in college in the in the '60s, and you know, going to high school in the in the in the mid '50s. Yeah. And uh, folk music, you know, it was the big the big boom. He got really into that and um, got to rub elbows with some some really notable American folk musicians uh, and composers, such as this guy named John Jacob Niles. That okay. I don't know. If you've you ever heard of him before, mm, I don't think so. Um, He's he he definitely wrote some choral pieces that made their way into the Anglican tradition, like uh, "I Wonder as I Wander," and there's okay. like some some you know things that uh, have been arranged and played. But they're basically taken from Kentucky folk uh, melodies and and lore and stuff like that. He's, okay. he's uh, John Jacob Miles is kind of like the Bartok of Kentucky. Right. Okay. Um, and studied composition in, in Paris in the, after World War One, Okay. And stuff like that kind of came out of that scene. So my dad actually knew him and uh, got one of his dulcimers. It was a whole thing. So I oh, yeah. started going to these folk group things with my parents. Yeah. And even though my mom was really 
primarily a classical musician she yeah. of course got into this other stuff being involved with my dad mm-hmm. and i would go along and i was i was encouraged to improvise you know or to to play just to play to learn the melodies of course first but i started figuring out that i could alter the things in little ways and that I don't know. It, it, it was maybe even coming from a more kind of vocal approach or just hearing what people were doing. Yeah. Um, as I got more into that and I, I was encouraged by that, my parents yeah. were giving me encouragement and, you know, showing me recordings of people doing this. And I was around exposed to a lot of uh, great players and people doing this. Um, yeah. I think I got into jazz probably when I was a teenager. Um, the first thing I got into after, you know, playing in folk, you know, playing the folk thing with, with my parents and my dad had a band, my parents had a band and then my dad had a band and, you know, we played uh-huh. gigs around town. And I remember the day that I learned the blue scale. I can't tell you the actual <laughs> date on the calendar, but, yeah. you know, all of a sudden I've got this Rosetta Stone um, for unlocking you know this new type of expression this sound and it's and it works everywhere yeah, yeah. and uh it was just totally magical and i started really getting into the blues before i got into jazz and then as my dad was kind of going back in his path from a folky back to a jazzer there was actually this iteration of the band where my dad picked his trumpet up. I didn't know my dad even played the trumpet until I was about 10. Mm -hmm. And he pulled the trumpet out of the closet, dusted it off, and started practicing because we (sighs) had gotten a gig at the first Mexican restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky. Right. And um, there was uh, the idea was for the band to add some Spanish songs and and Mexican folk songs, and my dad wanted to incorporate the trumpet. Yeah. It's kind of like a thing, and, you know... Once that happens, once if you're a trumpet player, you know, and especially once you get back into it because of what's demanded, you know, with your musculature and your chops and stuff like that, he just started practicing every day. Yeah. And um, then it was pretty much straight towards jazz and away from a lot of the other stuff. So, I mean, you know, he played guitar and banjo and, ah. you, know, sing, you know, sings. I mean, he's still very much alive and still does these things, but he just, he plays a lot of trumpet. Oh, cool. um, there was a lot of jazz in the house playing yeah. you know recordings even even during the the folk days uh, there was a lot of Ella Fitzgerald and um you know Chet Baker and mm-hmm. Clifford Brown and stuff that I just sort of heard sure. but um yeah it was it was at that moment that uh started all of a sudden you know the Stefan Grappelli with Dave Grisman records started popping up and and stuff like that and so when I heard that that just took me to a whole nother level of uh, excitement and fascination to hear a violinist, uh, you know, as sublime as Stefan Grappelli playing, you know, just this incredible stuff. And um, I, maybe for me, it was important to have that point of entry with the Dave Grisman group too, because right. I had heard a lot of that music, a lot of the new grass stuff. And so yeah. it gave me a frame of reference, you know? Yeah. That but that's, uh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's that's how it it all started, and it was all over after that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you, it's funny that you 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 sort of like you were around when your dad was like learning jazz. Then I guess is that 
Well, uh, to be, uh, I, to, I got to be a little bit more clear. So my dad went to high school mm-hmm. really near New York City, even though my dad um, is also from Kentucky. My parents are from Kentucky, but my dad went to a boarding school. Yeah. And so he got to go into the Village Vanguard, you know, and see Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And he yeah. got to see Horace, you know, Horace Silver. Like, we're talking the classic Blue Note stuff they would go in on weekends and they would go into the village and it was also like you know going into a scene where you've got the the jazz messengers playing but then the early show would be burl ives right sort of the you know the classic superstar crossover pop folk cat in america you know i mean it really intense greenwich village scene so he my dad got into playing trumpet and into jazz specifically when he was in high school. Okay. And he had a he had a band, and um, we actually just uh, somebody found a reel to reel tape recording of uh, this band that, that my dad was playing in, and he sang. He was kind of doing a little bit of the Chet Baker thing. Oh, and um, actually, the pianist in the band uh, went on to play with Frank Zappa, and right. he's a quite a well known. Uh, composer and arranger and uh, film person out in LA now. Oh, wow. It's kind of kind of incredible. But yeah, so my dad's jazz thing was more coming back to it. Okay. Um, you know, yeah. Okay. But I guess you got to see him practicing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that, listening to lots of records. I wonder if that helped you um on your way a bit. Cuz I know it can sometimes be quite hard to just I, I know for when, when I first heard like Grappelli the first bit, it was actually my granddad who showed me it. But when I first heard it, I loved it. And I thought, this is amazing, but I can't do that. I don't know what it is. And I just sort of accepted that and left it. But it must have been quite nice to have a, a musical family around, so have someone to say, oh, no, you, you know, you just do it like this. or Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think at a certain level, um, yeah. I think that, you know, I... I probably felt too comfortable. You right. know, I probably thought that I could I probably thought that I could cop more stuff than I mean, <sighs> I definitely felt more comfortable than I should have. You know. <laughs> I didn't I had no idea what was going on. But sure. I had this sort of unflagging uh, confidence in my ability to figure it out. Cool. Um which is you know, it was just uh you know, immature yeah. but but you know that that's sort of how I started out. Believe me, fair listeners, I was uh, very humbled <laughs> later well, on. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's what and, always and still, happens. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I well, you that with me, but yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you heard Grappelli, and you. What was your first? Yeah. What was your first? How did you first start trying to 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 do it? to play um i think that the the way that i first started playing and this is something that i've actually come back around to talking about with my own students also Mm -hmm. um and i and i got this also from some great jazz masters reminding me of this Uh like phil markowitz which is that really the way to to learn jazz it's it's important to always put it in the context of repertoire and when people start out playing, they can be sort of sucked in, if you're of a certain mindset, um, by exercises, mm. 
you know, books of etudes and, and things like that. All of that has has great value. You just have to have the right proportion of it. And, sure. you know, so for instance, you know, I think sometimes when people learn about a 251, you know, and they mm-hmm. start figuring out how to uh, shift around the violin and, and play their 251 patterns and stuff like this, that uh, sometimes a, 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 an incredibly large portion of one's playing time in a day can sort of get wasted doing that mm. rather than taking a tune that you might actually play at a jam session or that you want to play in a recording or whatever that has a bunch of two five ones and playing that tune in all keys yeah um so that you know you're 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 doing the technical thing and you're also putting it in a, in, a, in the context of music anyway mm. i just I, I think that that i wish that i had done even more of that actually when i was uh, deliberately starting out really trying to get my jazz stuff together mm. but uh, basically I started off with no theoretical understanding mm-hmm. at all just everything totally by ear which is I think the way most violinists um, start out sure and uh, it was because there were three tunes that we were playing in the band because my dad was starting to kind of introduce you know these these tunes into the band which was kind of like a new grass sort of outfit at the at, at this at the last point in the band when my dad pulled the trumpet out there was a my dad is playing guitar and trumpet there was another guitar player a dobro player a mandolin player and mm-hmm. that was that was kind of the oh and also the other guitar player i think played a little bit of banjo you know and they were all into the new grass revival and you know sam bush and yeah all the you know bela and all those cats who yeah, who yeah. were all around lexington they they were all around there, so they, it had a little context in that way. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, so there were these three tunes, which were uh, "Oh Lady Be Good," uh huh, um, "Sweet Georgia Brown" was actually the first one. "Sweet yeah. Georgia Brown," "Oh Lady Be Good," um, and then what else? What else would there have been? I think probably just just kind of like a blues of some sort. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um. But in particular, I just absolutely loved Stefan playing Oh Lady Be Good. Yeah. And that was kind of my signature tune. And, you know, to the point where I was trying to figure out some of these licks. And um, my dad had a Marantz tape recorder. You know, now you can just, you don't even need to have a program. You can just go on YouTube <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and slow things down. I mean, you can't loop it, but you couldn't do that, you know, back in the day anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were these things, uh, Marantz and I think Tiak made one that were sort of these little field recorders and right. they had this w- little switch. Like you would buy this, you know, several hundred dollar recorder just for this switch. Yeah. Because of course you, you can get a cheap tape recorder, you know, yeah. at Kmart. But uh, for this switch that would pop things to half speed, you would pay hundreds of dollars. And it, it was also hardcore, you know, because it would drop everything an octave. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and uh, you know, because it was, you're literally just yeah, yeah. cutting the speed of the tape in half. Yeah, sure, yeah. That's how my first, you know, I think in earnest trying to transcribe things started happening, you know, because wow. my dad knew about this thing. So I was learning a lot of stuff on Grappelli, you know, an octave down, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I guess your, yeah. your brain adjusts to it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so I so I was doing that, you know, and then I would go to, you know, amazingly enough, I guess, I'll, you know, a lot of people would not think about Lexington, Kentucky as having, you know, a jazz scene where there would be jam sessions and stuff, but there actually were, you know, at least groups of people. The first jam session that I, I started going to was at this guy's house, and he was really into the style of, of jazz that I was listening to or the era you know, mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of like the, the 20s and the 30s. And okay. the main repertoire that, you know, you would hear uh, Stefan and, and Django playing mm. when they weren't playing Django's original music. Yeah. Um, and then, the, you know, there was another jam session that primarily was happening with a lot of the people uh, at the university. And that was yeah. more of your standard jazz jam session, you know, which yeah. is kind of like material from like 1940 and on with the, mm-hmm. the heavy emphasis on pretty much everything recorded between 1952 and 1959. Yeah. <laughs> with your occasional 1961 to 64, if, you know, yeah. somebody wants to call some Wayne Shorter or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would go to these sessions and just take these little snippets of information that I knew on Lady Be Good and I would just stand up there until, you know, they couldn't take it anymore probably and they're just like okay we got to call some people you know and i would just sort of uh experiment with force fitting these little melodies in in ways that uh you know i could hear them you know Mm -hmm. and i would i would fail spectacularly all the time and then i would succeed (laughs) you know and it's like you know even even if you have like a 97 percent failure rate yeah. When you first start out improvising, that 3% is so intoxicating. Yeah, man. And, you know, that uh, it keeps you coming back. And yeah. that's that's how it all started for me, really. Ah. So that takes you up to what age? You're. I was doing this in like, mm, I mean, actually, I guess it started in maybe late, like middle school, you would say. Yeah, okay. You know, I guess maybe middle school and into high school. Okay. Um, Actually, you yeah. know, what is middle? Because that we don't have, <laughs> we wouldn't call it middle school over here. But it'd be interesting. I don't know what, when someone says middle school. I don't know what that means. What does it mean? Well, and you know, it's even changed now. Ah. Um, they seem to be changing it. So when I was growing up, elementary school was first through sixth grade. So basically, oh, okay. like six year six year olds yeah. to twelve year olds. Yeah, yeah. And then middle school was basically that you know just that purgatory of you know right. 13 14 you know and then high school was like uh 15 16 and 17 year olds yeah 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 okay more or less uh, we, I don't, um, we don't really have middle school here you go straight from primary to secondary hmm. and it's just primary secondary some people then when they they do one year somewhere else at the end but uh yeah okay that's interesting um yeah. so middle school you're playing at jams and uh you're playing you're whacking loads of Grappelli lines on <laughs> on everything. Um, what? How did you? Uh, how did you? Tran- uh, how did you uh, progress from there? Um, well, the whole time that I was doing all this, I was still studying, you know, traditional classical violin. Okay. And um, I had started studying uh, with somebody in the Lexington Philharmonic named Ned Farrar, mm-hmm. and the Farrars were really. Uh, and still are a very uh, influential uh, family for me. Actually, my my elementary school teacher was 
Ned's sister-in-law, and uh-huh. his brother is also this super hotshot violin player. They're, they came uh-huh. from this family of musicians where they they had an actual string quartet, and I think there was another instrument in there as well. An extremely musical family from outside of Lexington who all came there for yeah. the Philharmonic and uh, the university jobs and stuff like yeah. that. Um, so I studied with I studied with Ned for mm-hmm. uh, a few years. Yeah, and I, then I started to study with uh, this really super hotshot violin player who was the concertmaster of the Louisville Symphony, mm-hmm. and uh, his name is Peter McHugh, and he was a he's a New Yorker. Um, he was my my I think my first contact with you know somebody from New York, right? Uh, who was kind of coming out of that East Coast classical music scene in the United States mm-hmm. and he was my teacher um, kind of like midway to the end of high school yeah um, and I and then I ended up going on to study and get a classical degree at Northwestern in Chicago slash Evanston really Evanston but it's like north of Chicago okay. with uh, a guy named uh, Myron Cartman Dr. Myron Cartman yeah who's retired now um, and he's uh, you know I can't say, I couldn't. It's not possible for me to say enough good things about Myron Cartman. Yeah. Um, but that's my that's my full kind of you know training thing. My jazz training was always really ad hoc, and also I should say that you know while I was doing this, I mean there weren't there there were no books you know yeah. for jazz violin, and there there were only a couple of schools even in the United States that offered the possibility of studying it. I, one was Indiana University yeah. and the other was Berkeley College of Music. Okay, yeah. Uh, there was Matt Glazer up in, in Boston and there was David Baker down in Indiana. Um, I definitely thought a, a little bit about that and I'd been going to the Jamie Abersold camps in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going to the Abersold camps with my dad and I was also going to Louisville to study uh, with, with Peter McHugh. Um, I, I, you know, there's, I, it goes outside of the purview of this podcast to get into all of the reasons why, but suffice it to say that I just, uh, I personally felt like I didn't really want to go into those particular scenes at that time as mm-hmm. I perceived it. And also I felt like I really needed to buckle down on my classical stuff a little bit more because I'd spent a fair amount of my time in high school really being all over the place. You know, okay. I was, I, I, I don't know if this would speak to any of uh, your listeners out there, but you know, I, I'm not one of those people that knew what they wanted to do when they were 14 years old and yeah, you know, yeah. started getting up and practicing eight hours a day. That's yeah. definitely not me. I mean, one of the things about having a musical family, and if you're a, uh, an angry adolescent boy, which is the only thing I can speak with authority about, <laughs> is that uh, one of the things I rebelled against in a certain way was music. Right, okay. So, you know, I was also playing, an, you know, punk rock bands. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, that, especially from where my parents are coming from, was kind of the, you know, the end, is like anti-music. Right, yeah, yeah. You know? um, and I still, even though I don't, I don't listen to that for enjoyment. I think a lot of the ethos of that is yeah. is in, is in me. 
And, right. and I, I look for that. I find it, you know, in other things. There, it, for me, there was a big turning point with really deciding to get serious about jazz also when I started to see jazz music as kind of like the most... Mm, uh, how, how do I even say this? I mean, in the, in the context of American society, jazz music is is the greatest disruptor and also combiner of our culture. And we have a real big problem. Always have. Everybody else in the rest of the world can, can see it a lot more clearly because we've got more perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problems that we have in our society, particularly around race and around the legacy of slavery in the United States is um, it's literally tearing our country apart right now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things where it's just never being, uh, it's never being addressed in a, in a, in an honest way Yeah, by our, by our country, by our government, by our society, at least parts of our society that are holding power. And, uh, yeah. So, to me, in a lot of ways, jazz is the is the answer, mm-hmm. and is and is also from in, in my in my more adolescent view of like why I was drawn to punk rock music was because I was I was like man things are messed up or you know I'm yeah. messed up or whatever and I I want to express that yeah and I want to talk about it and I want to you know do that and. Uh, I'm I'm really glad that, uh, you know, I was able to learn some of the things that I was able to learn about jazz in a social context, mm-hmm. and especially you know what was going on with jazz and the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, yeah, yeah, all of that you know really w- was what really turned me on. You know, that yeah, and yeah. the album cover of Sonny Rollins with the mohawk. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've I've told this story before. And, you know, this is a little bit of a an insight probably into my 15, 16-year-old brain, which was that, so I wasn't really, also, I wasn't really into punk rock. I was really into skateboarding. And uh. the punk rock kind of came along with it as sort of an attitude, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of part of the part of the whole thing. Like, you know, you can't, you can't listen to, like, the modern jazz quartet and be skating on the ramp, you know? <laughs> No, you're right. Working on rad tricks. Yeah. I mean, you 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 could and I could go on and on and on about how, you know, skateboarding I love skateboarding, I'll yeah. just say. I really, really love it. Do you still do um, it? I don't do it anymore because of uh, the car accident that, that I was involved in when I was oh, in well. college. But yeah. I love I mean, I love it so much that, you know, if I'm going by a skate park and I'm not for time I'll just stop and just watch because hmm. I still feel it I feel it in every fiber of my of my body yeah um, and it's uh, to me a great skateboard run and this would be the same thing for a surfer a skier um, or anybody that does something like that is it's kind of a physical uh, representation of a lot of what happens in the brain when you're improvising yeah. through the form of a tune yeah. You know, you're picking lines, picking directions, yeah. um, altering certain vectors and expressing yourself in that way. Mm. Anyway, I've really, I've gone off the deep end here. But no, no, it's good to do that. <laughs> skateboarding, skateboarding, yeah. punk rock. Yeah. And uh, 
and so then my dad had this record set. My dad was really um, at the time that I was getting into, you know, more of the jam, like the contemporary jam sessions. He was, yeah. you know, really into Chet Baker, Jerry Mulligan, uh, you know, the the West Coast kind of cool jazz cats, as they yeah. may have been branded. Um, and he had this record set of Sonny Rollins with Clifford Brown. And they used to put out, you know, so much of, people can't also imagine this now, like uh, young people can't imagine things being out of print. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but I mean, a lot of my jazz education, you know, when I was coming up, I would say half of the records that people would recommend that I would listen to. I mean, and even at the time that they were, you know, CDs or whatever, you just couldn't get them. You know, you you would have to find a teacher that had an old record that they would would then play it onto a tape or later onto a CD for you. Um, So they all there are all these bootleg things coming out, you know, Uh just these these silly things that were just incorrect. They did this with CDs, too. You know, it'd be like Sonny Rollins uh, on Prestige. And then it would show a picture of Sonny Rollins with a giant afro in 1977. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uncovered. Just stupid <laughs> stuff, you know, just totally ignorant slapdash kind of stuff. Yeah. So this record set was all the sides that Sonny Rollins and Clifford Brown cut together. But there was this, I mean, a beautifully reproduced picture because this was a record set. So there were like four records, three or four records in yeah. a box, right? Yeah. And it was a picture of Sonny after he came back from the bridge. So this was, yeah. this was you know, all the Clifford stuff was in the, in the 50s, the mid and the late 50s. And this is a picture of Sonny in like 1962. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he's like super buff. Yeah. And he's got on this herringbone coat. It may even be double-breasted. He may have even been wearing a cravat or some sort of a thing like that yeah. and he had a mohawk uh-huh. and when I saw that when I was about 15 or 16 years old yeah because you know I was I, I thought to myself that is the most punk thing that I've ever seen yeah you know I think I've got this, it up is it is he like wearing is he wearing it looks yeah, like I, a black no it looks like look, this I don't think this is the same one Black well, there, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely, uh, you know, uh, many pictures of him with the mohawk. I mean, he yeah, sported yeah. it for for a few years. It was kind of his look. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of funny how that <laughs> that was actually the thing that influenced me to listen to that, and that was when I really first started listening to bebop mm. and perceiving that the way that I was hearing melodic ideas was not what was on this record and then i really did get stumped Mm. that was that was really tough that was my first dose of of humility right um of just like man i'm not i'm not putting this together of how this is working sure and amazingly enough we had this new conductor it's the first female conductor of the uh, central kentucky youth orchestra yeah and I was I was the concert master of you know doing my classical thing, yeah. And her husband is a fantastic jazz pianist and composer, uh-huh. and he had he had been sort of sidelined with with an illness 
um, the first year that she was there, which was my last year in high school. And he had been really stuck in their house for a long time. It was getting really, um, you know, it was not in a good place. And she knew that I was into jazz, and she arranged for me to have some lessons with uh, this guy, Patrick Stoyanovich. And I would say that these were the first actual one-on-one jazz lessons that I had. And right. our first lesson, he told me to bring the Charlie Parker Omni book. Okay. And in the context of that, um, he taught me, you know, about how to take it with a grain of salt. You know, okay. of course, the first first thing how everybody needs to know, you know, the Omni book is, is filled with inaccuracies. And yeah. it's kind of like a Where's Waldo. You just have to, you know, <laughs> f- find, the, find the really bad ones and, you know, write it. But um, it was the first time that I'd ever looked at this language yeah. written down. And then, then somebody started to show me. Uh, the theoretical things that were totally missing in my playing. This is when I. This is where I really grasped the importance of uh, like jazz language over two five ones. Okay. And you know, and going through and circling, you know, it'd be like, okay, take uh, this ornithology solo, and I want you to find all the two fives, and I want you to pick pick one mm-hmm. or two and figure out how to play them in other keys. You know, like that. That was yeah. the beginning for me of of that kind of a thing it's a big moment okay how old were you when that was happening i think this is right about the same time that i saw that mohawk picture this is probably yeah yeah uh, i don't know 15 16 something like yeah, that yeah 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 cool yeah. okay and um i guess i'm just doing a timeline here a timeline of zach brock but um that's dangerous yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but so you 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 started to learn a little bit about bebop, and yeah. then how did you manage to develop? Well, just keep that developing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my you know I would say the the foundation of my my actual. Um, deliberate development in that area had to do with, you know, working on transcriptions and analyzing them. Okay. Um, I, I didn't do a ton of them, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really didn't, you know, but even if you just do one, yeah. you know, that's enough, that's enough to build an entire foundation of, you know, your understanding. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, like so, a whole, you would do whole solos then? You would learn like a couple of whole Yeah, like, but I mean, you know, there were these, there were Charlie Parker solos, so the recorded ones because of the limitations of the yeah. of the recordings at the yeah. time were super short that's it's that's one of the many great things about you know i think starting starting out with those obviously you have to have your violin playing together yeah or you know be getting it together but you know that's a lot uh more doable than you know tackling um you know a, a, a coltrane solo in 1960 or something like that you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. They're Jesus. short. Yeah, so, yeah, they you know, are. You, can, yeah. you know, I mean, some of them are even like one chorus. Yeah. You know, I think it's so great to you know start out with some of those things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, but it seems like you. One of the questions I was going to ask you was how you managed to keep your like your your technique together whilst you were learning to play jazz because that's something that just has been brought up loads of times in in the interviews I've done, where people get to a point where they're 
practicing loads of jazz and they're trying to get loads of jazz language down and then they realize suddenly that they're I mean, this is i think it happened to me at some point this is realize suddenly that you've not been thinking about how what sounds coming out of your instrument and all you're thinking about is the notes and uh, the quality of the solo and the quality of of your improvisation and you're not looking at the tone did that ever happen to you and if not how did you uh, make that not happen to you man that is so interesting that you say that because Jeff DeBernstein, who is the director of the Off the Hook Arts thing, I just got back from this thing in Colorado, yeah, uh, had tagged me on this post, right? Um, that I've I've thought about this for a long time, but there's there's this thing. Um, it says brains of jazz and classical musicians work differently. Of course, uh-huh. obviously, you know we're, we're we know this. They're yeah, going yeah. into different different uh, areas of the brain but it was interesting to me in this article talks about um it was something that i hadn't thought about uh the idea of let's see replanning uh-huh i you know i would have to even i would have to read the article but but exactly what you're saying yeah. the article is talking about how jazz musicians when they're playing it, it was like they're having jazz musicians and classical musicians play the same piece of music and this is mm. just pianists but and basically you know actually checking out the parts of their brains that are working yeah and one of the things that the the jazz players are really focusing on to really overly simplify this this article is that it's we're focusing on what we're playing uh-huh. and the super high level classical musicians are focusing as intently on mm-hmm. how they're playing it, mm, yeah, and it's and you know that's really it. And the high, you know, I think I I wrote like a little response after I'd I'd had a bourbon or two on my birthday, <laughs> um, which was you know basically that yes, you know this is this is kind of like a. It's funny when scientists get super fascinated by things that people have always known from the beginning that are actually involved in the music. But mm-hmm. the insight, I think, was still a little bit useful for me to be able to articulate that. I think that the greatest players of either classical music or of jazz music, you know, combine these these two elements more, mm-hmm. so that the greatest classical musician, uh, you know, not only focusing on the the level of nuance and technique and everything in the way that they're playing it will also yeah. have a, a broader view of what's going on in the music yeah you know like it, you know, everybody usually in a classical study at some point has had a teacher say for you to get to the next level you really need to you know understand where the line is going and from this some theoretical information is yeah. uh, is useful and of course violinists never listen to that yeah um, partially because we don't have the information laid out in front of us like yeah. a piano player we're at a disadvantage True. Um, but then of the uh, of the jazz players you think about like the real great greats they definitely do incorporate that type of sorry about that <laughs> what they definitely incorporate that type of uh, uh, you know focus on how it's being played and yeah. I, I think for a long time I thought about that as uh I guess I was calling it refinement or something like that. Okay, yeah. So who um, who would you who like who who would you say does that? Oh well, I mean, without a doubt, I would say somebody like Keith Jarrett. Yeah. You know, Keith Jarrett or Brad Meldow yeah. or um, 
you know, I mean, of, of uh, you know, yeah, like of very recorded people that, you know, you could, I mean, and of course, you know, in the, in the, in the pantheon of the greats, I mean, of course, yeah. you know, train, cannonball, Adderley, uh, you know, I mean, I could, I could go on and on and on, but, you know, just thinking about that. And then there's some people that play just amazing ideas, but maybe, uh, you know, the, exactly the details of what's going on on the instrument aren't at yeah. front and center. But I think that I, anything where you get to a top level, yeah, that's involved. So I actually can't really point to any really great jazz player that doesn't have yeah, uh, sure. That happening. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's it's funny though cuz that's, you know, the violin, you I feel like violin and and trumpet are quite similar and that you, like a lot of the time you well, I just, maybe I'm I don't know if I'm right, but like trumpet players a lot of the time you've got people who who are te- technicians or or the jazz players. A lot out of a lot of the trumpet players that I know people who are full-on technicians that can hit all the high notes in the, in the big band. Mm-hmm. And they're not always the people think, who can solo so well. I think um, I understand that more now, though, you know, because it's yeah. like, I mean, to to be able to do that and to really do it um, in, a, in a really seriously legit yeah. way, it takes so much of your practice time. Yeah. I mean, who, who we are as musicians... And our, you know, the the characteristics that we ultimately choose to accentuate, it's all based within time. Yeah. You know, you, we all have finite amount of time, and then what you what we do with it. And for somebody to be able to be a, a, a high note specialist that yeah. plays with a giant fat round, you know, beautiful sound in these stratospheric levels. You, yeah. you have to spend so much of your time just doing athletic things. Yeah, yeah. And so then you're not exercising the intellectual part of your brain because, yeah, you, yeah. you know, you just don't have time to do it. You know, you've yeah. got to make a choice. Yeah. I just, I think that that's just the thing that maybe hits violinists and, and quite hard because because of, it is such a technically demanding instrument, isn't it? At, mm-hmm. do, do you know what I mean? I think it's yeah, a diff- I think it's a really different. Maybe maybe it happens with stuff like with with other instruments as well. But I feel like you know it's, with violin, if you if you've not got if you like make a mistake or with your technique and your tone's bad, it totally shows. <laughs> yeah, know, like yeah. the the bad the bad notes are much worse on a violin than than they are on to any other the piano. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, we're not pushing down buttons, you know. We yeah. we're not pushing down uh, levers. We're not pushing down buttons. Yeah, and you know every expression of of uh, of pitch, there's some microtonal variation. Mm. You know, even at the at the highest level of the greats of the greats of the greats. Yeah, um, yeah. and yeah, it's just a it's a it's a really it's a tough axe. Yeah. Is it something that you feel that you so have you how have you managed to combat that if you did do you feel like you have combated that through the years do you keep up with your like classical technique stuff do you is there anything that you practice that um that keeps your technique up well my technique uh waxes and wanes uh-huh <laughs> um you know but yeah generally when i have a uh, kind of a personal routine happening at the same time that I'm also performing a lot. Yeah. That's obviously when my technique is is at its at its best. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, you know, that also has been an interesting thing for me to to tackle now that I've, you know, I, I perform primarily, but I also do teach, and I've been teaching at Temple University in Philadelphia oh, yeah. now for... Uh, coming up on my fifth year, okay. which, you know, I mean, I've taught before here and there, but I'd never been in an actual formalized yeah. program. Um, and for me, it's been kind of a trip because yeah. I went through a classical program and never knew what it was like to go through a jazz program. Now all yeah. of a sudden I'm in a jazz program huh. trying to fit, you know, like trying to represent that and also teach the violin, Yeah, which is why I chose to, you know, initially why I chose to study formally classical violin uh, at the university. Yeah. Um, I think that there are ways where you can very directly bridge just raw technical things. I mean, I mean, first of all, and just the mechanics of the violin, it's all the same stuff at the, at the, at the most mechanical level. Uh And I, you know, my, really my biggest inspiration probably over the past 15 years has been articles by uh simon fisher and then his his ah, books yeah i've you got know. one of his books he's in london right yeah i yeah. mean he's he's a genius to me he, he yeah. really is uh an absolute genius who who has combined uh He's combined all the knowledge or he seeks to combine the 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 knowledge of violin as a yeah. whole and he's he's not just coming from the galamian or the flesh or the russian yeah. school you know the hour you know it's it's sort of you know or the dorothy delay or you know yeah he he uh, is really kind of approaching this in the most modern way yeah. of trying to you know i guess represent an accumulation of this knowledge and and see new ways of doing it so on a mechanical level we're doing the same thing yeah um uh, to me, like for me, I have a I have a warm up that I can do mm-hmm. that actually really came into focus when I became a dad. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, five year old twin daughters. Yeah, yeah. And oh, wow. I went through a total, you know, freak out when uh, I found out that I was going to become a dad and, and that they were going to be twins, especially of just, you know, <laughs> suddenly, you know, cause I had been really sort of a free range player and I would, I, you know, I would have little routines that I would get into. They would burn out yeah, because yeah. I would, of course, they would always take too long. I could kind of keep them going for a few days, but, you know, <laughs> Sounds like and especially me. as I, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I think what we all do. Yeah. And, uh, so it was a combination of that and also playing more on the road is that I would I would start to get I'd be playing every night but there would be a certain thing that I would feel like I could start to get out of touch with yeah especially when you have to just jump out of the van and go straight on stage and just yeah. start playing you know I'm not that's not my favorite way you know I I know I can do it but I don't enjoy it yeah yeah so I developed a a warm up my own warm up and and there's actually a great uh, very very short book or kind of extended pamphlet, whatever you would call it, that Simon Fisher published called "Warming Up," yeah. which is incredible. It's incredible. Every every violin player and viola player should get this get this thing. Yeah. Um, it's you know, and what I did was I sort of cher- I cherry picked it, uh-huh. and I, I figured that okay, when I pick my violin up out of out of the case. 
I mean, if I'm not wasting time, because I'm also trying to really not waste time because I have zero time now. Um, yeah. Okay, like, you know, between, you know, 10 to 30 minutes. 30 minutes if I'm really being luxurious and, uh-huh. I, and I really don't have any pressing stuff going on. Um, but I was able to come up with a thing that at least hits all the technical points in my right hand and left hand technique and warming up my body and my ears and my brain that if if i jump out of the van and i have to go straight on stage and sound check but then Mm -hmm. there's like five minutes ten minutes even five minutes i've done this you know Mm -hmm. where i just go off into a little hallway or something Mm -hmm. and i go through this routine i feel really connected yeah. Um, you know, and there's there's, you know, the the things I hit in terms of uh, you know, finger independence, uh intonation exercises, bow exercises, uh cole or finger stroke exercises, you know, some of these things, you know, bow sound point, bow steering exercises, mm-hmm. shifting. Um some of these things only take 10 seconds. Sure. If you if you really concentrate on them. Some of them take maybe you know a couple minutes. Yeah. Um, and I'm always I'm always changing it. I'm always switching it now. So I, I sort of have this this nice little system where if I and especially if I feel like uh, I'm aware of some other uh, deficiency or block in my playing or ease of playing. Yeah. You know I'll just pause one section of it and supplement this new thing. Add yeah. it in. That's been. Uh, I think really, really uh, a huge thing for me in the past five years. Right, um, okay. I think it's really helped my playing a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's based on the Simon Fisher stuff or a lot a lot based on that? It's based on the Simon Fisher stuff and the the classic one that I learned from my teacher, uh, Dr. Myron Cartman, uh, mm-hmm. which was the Dunas Daily Dozen. Oh, I don't know what that is. Now, this is something that w- was out of print also as a as a pedagogical material you know but um yeah uh dc dunas was this uh it's kind of uh a little bit after sevchik Mm -hmm. and uh you know some some of the exercises there was this one thing that was in print that uh you know everybody in college would try to get a copy of this and then you try to do the exercises and give yourself tendonitis in like you know a week <laughs> just you know because you weren't doing it right you know it's, yeah. it's something that that really also you you got to know how to do it it's yeah. it's not it's not some like jumping in as a beginner violin player stuff to do um but he he had a thing that he developed and i i don't even know when this was if it was in the 30s or the 40s or you know something like that that he called the da- his daily dozen Okay, and it was this. So you know, violin players have been doing this since the beginning of, you know, playing the violin. I'm sure, and uh, so yeah, I kind of cherry picked from that certain things that I like in that, especially some of the bow pattern things, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the Simon. But the Simon Fisher stuff is just, you know, it's it's so great. It's just so great. Everybody should should get it. Yeah, I, I know some people who. Who were taught by him? I think he teaches at the Royal Royal Academy, I mean, maybe he still does. I'm not sure, but I, I'm sorry. Would you would you say there? It cut out for a second. Oh, uh, no worries. Um, yeah, I think I know some people who were taught by him actually. Some violinists I know in uh, in London. Um, I think he's a really good teacher, 
all round as well. Not only does yeah. he write good books, but he's a yeah. I think he's a really good teacher. Um, so you um, you made you sort of created your own routine, and something mm-hmm. I think that's something that like jazz musicians tend to do a lot, right? You create yeah. all these strange little things that you do, yeah, like these personal to you. Um, and I, I think that's sort of part of you know it's not it's not really a very classical way of learning, is it? No, it's but, not. But I was fine when I teach um, people who have come from a classical background. They t- tend to want information, and they want they'll want you to give them information and show them exactly how you do it, and then they'll do that, and then they'll get better. But it doesn't actually really work like that does it in for me it feels like you've got to show or you know you want to learn what other people do but then at the end of the day you've got to find you've got to make up your own little things like that don't you like this absolutely this little warm-up routine you've got to find your own right way around it so have you always done that is that something you've always Um, done i think i've been searching for that probably Mm -hmm. since i was in my in my let's say late teens or definitely my 20s and like when i was mm-hmm. when i was working you know on the, the classical stuff because circling way back to a question that i never really answered was that i you know i was i was studying classical music and trying to study jazz simultaneously but i didn't have a combined mm. approach okay you know i mean and there, there's so many reasons why myron cartman was so great for me yeah for one, he was actually the the senior, you know, teacher at the school when I came in, but also I think in a lot of ways the actually maybe in every way the most open-minded. Right. And that he he knew that, you know, somebody told him that I was played jazz and stuff like that. And instead of being mad about that, yeah. there's so many stories we've all heard about people's classical teachers forbidding them to, you know, and then people have to go off and lie yeah. to their teacher and sneak around behind their back. Yeah, I've Cartman been quite just close said, to that, to be honest. <laughs> really? You had to deal with that? Well, not, not exactly that, but more like I had a, I had, I wanted lessons with somebody in college because my violin teacher left and I wanted lessons with, my jazz violin teacher left and I wanted lessons with a classical violinist and I had lessons and they just were basically they just didn't really like they were just angry with me all the time <laughs> and you would be con- oh you'd be a great violinist if you weren't if you didn't do this jazz stuff you just didn't really right. get it we never never ha- didn't really want to help me become a jazz musician basically would rather I stopped and went straight to you know and just did their thing you know but yeah yeah so you Carry on. No, that's that's super interesting because so so Cartman told me yeah. when he found out that I was I was playing jazz he was he said you know very wryly well you know I really don't care what you do with the violin you know you yeah. can stick it up your ass no yeah. I mean I I don't even know if he, <laughs> I I've blown the story up in my mind to imagine that he said all these very colorful things because he's a big personality. He's a right. big guy and a big personality, uh, magnetic and, and uh, exuberant. Yeah. And basically he said, you can do whatever you want with the violin as long as you show up yeah. to your lesson and you've got, you know, you got your scale, your scales together. You've got yeah. your etude that I've assigned you and, you know, the first page or whatever section of the music that we're working on and whatever yeah. sonata or concerto. I don't care what else you do. Yeah. Um, 
And the thing that I'm so thankful about studying with a teacher like him is that his primary uh, goal I always felt as a teacher was to really teach his students how they could teach themselves. Uh-huh. And I think that that's why, I think that that's, uh, coming from that mindset is what allowed him to be as open-minded as he is. Because yeah. I could imagine that if you're a classical teacher that that does not have that type of mentality, but is more sort of, I need to... Uh, imprint this system that was imprinted on me onto this other person and they're dicking around you know not practicing four hours a day on this system how can I teach them this system it requires four hours a day yeah and being frustrated yeah Yeah. I think that's where this guy was at with me and I could understand that as well yeah I mean I didn't understand that earlier on but I can I can understand that now yeah yeah and uh I think that I've just, I think for that reason also, I've, I've come across some jazz teachers that had a system. Yeah, and that's true. Uh, for a while, I was fascinated by it, almost like a shiny object for me. And yeah. then I, quick, I quickly became very dissatisfied. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I, I, had a, I had an extreme reaction, I think, emotionally to some of that because I felt, I felt like this person's not even listening to the way that I play. So yeah. it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if like, basically they're, they're, they're not putting their finger on what the problem is. They're just saying like, okay, well, this is lesson number four, so you're going to do this, and then yeah, next week yeah. I'll come back and I'll give you the next part of the PDF. Man, yeah, I definitely have seen that as well with jazz. In, yeah. yeah, so that's not my approach. Yeah. Um, but it, it works for some people, and more do power to them. Does, uh, doesn't, do you think right. it can it can create someone who if you just follow a system somebody else's system think you can i don't know i didn't feel like well maybe, maybe i'm actually to be honest i'm just thinking about it from my own perspective maybe it doesn't work for me but some people perhaps i think that you could like it I, th- I think i think you can end up with somebody that uh can have a lot of chops yeah i mean you know Im- imagine how how much better you could play stuff if you never thought about them <laughs> If basically yeah. your 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 approach to developing your impro- your voice, your actual improvisational yeah. voice, was just basically a linear thing where it's like yeah. you got up and ran your sprints and you know you could play super yeah. fast and high and in tune yeah. and you know yeah. uh, you would have to then for the rest of your life I guess seek information to input into that system. Yeah, sure. And that and that might work for for you yeah. and that yeah. that might be something that people call you for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's definitely not my thing. Yeah. You know, my thing is more, yeah, the the polar opposite of that. Yeah. I Although mean, I'm, I'm always looking to have a little bit more of that in my own thing too. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine actually, yeah, no one, I don't think anyone would, I'm, rubbish, I'm sort of sitting there rubbishing that, but actually I, it doesn't, I don't think anyone can just take a system and not put their own thing into it and not take anything else from anything else. No one does that really. You can't have, no one has that brain. Right. You know, every, everyone takes influence from everywhere, don't they? So, yeah. um, what's what? Where where did we get to? Did I did I did I manage to get you to give me a full lineage of of Zach Brock? I feel like we maybe didn't. Maybe well, I mean, one. okay. So I mean, I guess we're we're basically up to uh, university, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were doing uh, classical studies, right? I was doing classical studies in Evanston, Illinois, at 
Northwestern University, which is uh, there's a, 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 a little town. It's basically like the northern part of the city of Chicago. It's all uh-huh. connected along the lakefront, um, but it's its own little town called Evanston, and that's where mm-hmm. this university is. And I was studying with Myron Cartman, and then I was I was going down to the Jazz Showcase and the yeah. Green Mill and, and all these great places in Chicago and hearing the the players for the first time in my life i was getting to actually rub elbows with the legends who i had heard on recordings i mean i remember when i got to go down and just sit three feet away from kenny burrell and then you know talk to him after the set and so what i started doing and i still do this by the way is Mm. i'll hear somebody that i love and i'll i love their playing and i'll ask them for a lesson yeah um, and I, I still do that. And yeah. it has, it's led me everywhere for, yeah. you know, for me. I mean, not, not only in my education, but even to whatever you would say of my, my career or my uh, um, relationships, you know, mm-hmm. in music. So, some of them have even begun like that. I mean, that's how I started this relationship uh, musically with Phil Markowitz because I, I sought him out. Uh-huh. as a teacher because he's a genius player and um, people told me that he was particularly great at articulating ideas like that uh-huh. and I got together and I had a bunch of lessons with him right yeah and then our friendship or our our relationship developed into a friendship into getting interested in writing this type of you know uh, jazz that we were exploring mm-hmm. kind of you know post train uh, chromatic um, jazz right, yeah. approach uh, and getting into writing stuff for violin and piano and imagining what a band would sound like. And so it became a CD, which is Perpetuity, the one I did with Phil. And, and we've yeah. been, most of my international touring actually over the past couple of years has been with Phil. And especially right. now that we're, we're playing a lot of duo stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, him and Phil and Snarky Puppy are my, the most you know, international touring stuff that I do as yeah. of late, as of the past five years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I did. And, you know, that pretty much does bring us through the, the lineage. I mean, I, you know, haven't stopped doing that. I started playing out in Chicago when I was in college. Um, if people want to, you know, read the, the sob story about my car accident, that's on my website. You can go read it. <laughs> it's, it, it's, I, it's on there somewhere. It's, it's yeah. in an article. I talk about it in an article, right. uh, with Neil Tesser. Um, mm-hmm. I was on a bicycle. Basically, I got hit by a car. It was a hit and run type thing. Yeah, and wow. uh, I was out of commission for a long time. So oh, I wow. also had, you know, maybe some people out there can experience, or I, I, I'm sorry, not experience, but can relate to the experience of uh, starting to get really into a certain idea and then being stopped by something mm. you know whether it's your health or your financial situation or you know, yeah. all, all the things that can come in between you and your ability to to play music yeah and uh, that's probably had the biggest impact on you know my my personality as an adult and and who i am and the questions mm. that i started asking myself and everything like that and uh yeah after that you know, and I kind of came through that after many years and a lot of help from a lot of great people playing music, playing more jazz, starting to play original jazz mm-hmm. uh, with people that were my age mm-hmm. um, and starting to um, 
have my own bands, which uh, that happened after I had a lesson with the great Pat Martino. Right. Um, I was I was playing in a band. It was the, my first original jazz group that was kind of this uh, collective, and it was uh, tongue in cheek title of uh, Spaztet. Right. which really offended a lot of people, actually, yeah, I which is, I, I thought was funny. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Great. Um, uh, th- that band was all original music, and um, the guitar player in the band, Aaron Weistrop, was going through this thing of like really, really being into the, the, Pat Mar- the early Pat Martino records. Uh-huh. Um, and there was this record called Consciousness that mm-hmm. I was checking out. It's like, I think it's the one that he plays his kind of... Um, you know the quintessential Pat Martino solo on impressions and that was mm-hmm. a transcription that I did right. and I had this lesson with Pat and I was so here I was like in my in my mid-twenties and I was playing a lot of original jazz and I was I was doing it you know I was starting mm-hmm. to do it we were starting to make recordings mm-hmm. and uh, had really kind of started and I still had this idea though that even though I was kind of toying around with some original music I really what I I I just wanted to play, I wanted to play like Dizzy Gillespie. If I could, if yeah. I could just make the the lines come out of my violin like that and yeah. just play Dizzy Gillespie tunes, yeah. I was still totally fulfilled. Yeah. So I had this lesson with Pat Martino, and and we played. And he has this. I I can't do an impersonation because my my voice is not nearly low enough. He's got this super low baritone yeah, yeah. voice coming out of a very small man yeah and uh very you know kind of a super intense personality and he yeah. said well he said um you know sounds nice and you know we can talk about you know these these, these things certain things to work on check out and you know do you, his whole concept of dividing the fingerboard up with the diminished and uh, whole tone scales i think oh, yeah. was also very life-changing for me to think about that and the violin and the mechanics of how that works. But Pat said, um, you realize that if you want to play this, this type of jazz, you know, you say that you want to play that we're playing, that you've got to start your own band. Yeah. And I keep coming back to this little nugget of information. I, I heard it when he said it, but I did not want to hear it. Yeah. And the fact that he said it, I think, planted the seed in a yeah. more indelible way, which I think was really important. Because mm-hmm. maybe if somebody else had said that, that I, I didn't you know, look up to like a jazz god or something like <laughs> that, that I may have just discarded that information and missed sure. the whole point. But I had this delusion. Uh, I think that it was a healthy delusion for my development. Mm-hmm. It, it got me through which was that if I could just mimic, and this comes, I think, you know, this takes me back all the way to sort of, uh, you know, learning violin and Suzuki method and uh, mimicking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could just, you know, mimic Cannonball Adderley, you know, yeah. if like my, you know, and really just play like that, and people are just into the music, then it doesn't matter that I play the violin. I can just play, you know, I, I, I will be interchangeable with yeah. a jazz saxophone. Yeah, I will yeah, be, yeah. You know, if I can get my yeah. Clifford Brown sound, I will be interchangeable. Basically yeah. what Pat was saying was, this is kind of how I've worked this out, you know, over the years, is that, see, as I said before, 
I always thought of jazz as the music of freedom and of rebellion and mm-hmm. of uh, inclusiveness and openness. Yeah. That and that still is my relationship to jazz. Uh-huh. But something that I think that I've I've come uh, up against in maybe a, a more realistic way, and it's it is kind of a bummer, is that there is an element. Um, of jazz and American jazz, it might even be a little bit more intense. Of a, a sort of traditionalist attitude that is actually very close-minded. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so basically, Pat was trying to tell me, I believe, and he was he was more articulate than I'm. I'm making this out to be. I mean, he talked about it a little bit, which is like, if somebody wants to have a hard bop group. Because yeah. like that's that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play hard bop. Yeah. Like I like bebop and all that, but like my favorite favorite stuff is like mm-hmm. you know at the time it was like 1956 to 1959, man. Like just yeah, jazz yeah. messengers all <laughs> the way. You yeah, know, yeah. Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard. I just that's all I listen to. And so you started uh, with a blue so, scale, in it. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and it is, and yeah, it, it was like there was that in there. Yeah. And also boogaloos and things like that that were starting yeah, to happen yeah. in American music. Yeah. But at the same time, also, the refinement of the bebop language, yeah. I've always felt, you know, definitely, you know, reaches its pinnacle in yeah, that, yeah, you know, totally. in, the, in the hard bop things. I mean, that's like, those are the, those are, those lines are just, you know, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're like set in stone at that point, aren't they? I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. They're set in stone and, and really, you know worked out and yeah yeah so uh anyway pat was you know it's like man if somebody wants to have a hard bop group <laughs> they're not gonna call you they're not gonna call <laughs> you and it's not it's not because of of what you would play yeah, it's because yeah. of the sound yeah and this totally. is something that i was i was really 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 i had to delude myself and go into kind of a role-playing fantasy i think yeah to 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 not be discouraged by that and i think that a lot of that had to uh, is what has led me in the direction of working on the kind of sound that i yeah. i've been working on you know because when i started out you know the the epitome to me was the sound of stefan grappelli sure i talk about this all the time you know which is that stefan grappelli is the perfect gateway drug mm-hmm <laughs> For classical violinists getting into yeah. jazz violin, because Stefan Grappelli really doesn't make many demands on your concept of aesthetic. Totally. You know, it's like sounds like a great classical violin player. Yeah. Playing jazz is what Stefan yeah. Grappelli sounds like. You know, to yeah. to just reduce it. That's being very reductive, and you know, it's not dissing. That's like yeah, yeah. I know. get it. So. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I think that, yeah, some some of this self-delusion <laughs> and trying yeah, to, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, get these other sounds and trying to sort of, you know, do that, you know, whether it be acoustic and then also I was working really hard and as much as I could on, you know, ampli- amplification, trying to figure yeah. it out, experimenting with different pickups. Of course, every time back then you would experiment with a pickup, you'd basically have to buy it. You yeah. still kind of do. Yeah, I mean, um, you definitely do. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really not easy. It's have an expensive endeavor. Yet? I'm always trying to, to make it better. I mean, it's it, it, it always gets a little bit closer, but the, then yeah. the, 
as it gets closer, then the sound, my ideal sound becomes clearer in my mind. Yeah. As I, <laughs> as I keep working on this. And then yeah. I will perceive, you know, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy where I'm where I am right now. Yeah. But what do you not, what do not, you use if you don't mind? I mean, let's sure. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do the tech talk. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I have definitely I've been playing these pickups um, and instruments also by this fantastic genius luthier in Ithaca, New York, named Eric Acido. Oh, maybe and I've heard about this guy. Yeah, he. Um, so I heard about this guy. So I didn't have an electric violin. I just had the you know the classic and uh shall we even say dreaded fishman violin pickup that i just jammed in my bridge (laughs) and you know i didn't i didn't have any preamp or anything like that it was like you know i i didn't know anything you know about anything just kind of uh dealing with that the best thing that i could do is just plug it into an amp turn the treble all the way down and hope for the best Mm -hmm. and uh I think it was the first year that I went to the Stanford Jazz Workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, I met this violinist who was about my age named Ted Falcon. And Ted mm-hmm. was really good. And he had this a little he had this electric violin that looked crazy. It, it was it wasn't like the only electric violins you could get then mm-hmm. were Zetas. That was it. Yeah. It was like Zeta or wow. a pickup. And um I didn't have the money to get a Zeta and I wasn't really sure. Yeah, because I didn't really like that kind of very buzzy kind of sound. I and and I yeah. didn't understand actually what that was yeah. and where that came from. So yeah. I blamed it on the Zetas. Okay. Um. And uh, Ted was playing this this axe, and it just sounded really good. Like it mm-hmm. really sounded good. And that's when I found out about um, Eric Asito's instruments. And so that was the first electric violin that I got. Uh huh. And then I also. Uh, so, so for a long time, I played, I had sort of my jazz violin that had the electric setup, and then I had my my classical violin. Yeah. Um, that's also the, when I got an instrument from Eric, I started playing five string. So I was always playing five string violins and jazz after a certain point. Yeah, okay. And then I was, you know, um, about 10 years ago, for, you know, personal reasons, but largely due to my uh, uh, fascination and fixation with Zbigniew Seifert and finally oh, yeah. being able to discover all the stuff about Zbigniew that was, you know, totally unknown and unavailable to me. How did you just uh, pronounce his name? Zbigniew Seifert. Yes. Okay. I was. Yeah. I was. I can never really work it out how you're supposed to pronounce. Well, it. I'm not really saying it right because Zbigniew- for me, Polish pronunciation is about the hardest thing I've it's ever attempted. Brutal, isn't it? My grandfather's yeah, I mean, Polish, but I, I Oh really? It. Yeah. It's not, wow. it's not in my it's not in my uh, not not it's difficult. <laughs> it's it yeah, like yeah, there's I mean even the the yeah. the the word for violin. I if any okay, here's some some uh, humor for any Polish listeners out there. Oh, yeah. If you said uh <laughs> I can't say it. But you know, it's like to get the sh and the k and the, at the same time yeah. it's like man I can't do it it's brutal yeah yeah anyway carry um, on sorry I stopped yeah. you no no so um, it was I think uh, in, in in perceiving the way that he was playing the range of the instrument and knowing oh, that man, he only yeah. was playing the four string violin that caused me to 
take a look at the way that I'd been playing the five string violin. Mm -hmm. um, I loved that low sound and being down in the alto saxophone range, yeah. but the actual way that I was, I was using it mm -hmm. was not as comprehensive from the standpoint of like how I was actually using the instrument. So sure. for instance, I'll be a little bit more clear. Um, it, I started to become more aware of sort of going into certain zones in my, in my lines and, and, you know, what I would play in certain keys sort of being dictated by certain parts of the instrument that would start to be sort of a Pavlovian response. Yeah. You know, like the key of B where I would play yeah. in the key of B where I would start my ideas or, if yeah. I, you know, I, you know, the, 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 the weird, you know, in the strange, uh, nether regions of, you know, tonality on the violin, yeah, for, especially yeah. for classical violinist. And, um, yeah. So that's when I, uh, decided to, that I, I needed to combine, uh, my mentality and, you know, I had to do that with an instrument and I wanted to play my other violin for a while. And Eric makes these pickups that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I have, I have his, his ISI pickup on my, on my good violin. I mean, my, my violin that I play now is a Leandro Biziak violin from mm -hmm. like 1895, you know, right. and it's, uh, I don't change my bridge out or anything like that. Yeah. Um, it, I, I find that it has as little uh, detrimental effect on the acoustic sound as I've ever heard. I mean, to, to wow. the point where, it, it, you know, it sounds just like any different, you know, just like you would get a different bridge cut for a violin. It's going to sound slightly different than the other. So it doesn't deaden it when, you, when you've when you got the... No. It's, it's a pickup that goes into the bridge or is it a bridge? It doesn't that's... go into the bridge. It's like in the bridge. Okay, like the whole right, thing yeah. is like part yeah. of the thing. There, I know there was a cat in Paris that was, I think, making some things like this for Didier. Well, I think um, that Didier always used uh shirtler right there was another one that he had i know that he endorsed shirtlers and that's actually why i ended up buying a shirtler one time because yeah. I, I i was in a, a dda phase yeah and um <laughs> Tell me about it. this this actual uh pickup that i saw a picture of that looked really awesome was not a shirtler it was yeah. actually made made by this luthier in in paris ah. who, still make stuff and I, I can't remember his name but anyway uh, i always thought that was just a doctored a doctored shirtler i thought that he that's what I, that's that's the i don't the think so because I I, I I believe that it combined with the bridge and yeah. um i actually also i i got a chance uh 10 years ago now or eight years ago to i i met uh zbigniew's widow agnieszka right. and she pulls Spiggy's violin out from under the couch. Uh-huh. Um, wow. Amazing. And, you know, the strings are down. I think the last time it had been played was, like, in the in the 80s at a concert by Michal Urbaniak. Wow. And um, it was incredible to, to, to just hold that violin, to look yeah. at it. And I looked at the bridge, and I don't know who made this, but he had some sort of a embedded-in-the-bridge pickup. Right that was definitely some, you know, handmade artisanal yeah. thing that somebody did for him in the mid seventies. Right. Um, I'd never seen anything like it before or since I took some pictures of it and I have to yeah. find, find out what that was, but yeah. 
Um, anyway, you know, a, a lot of that was kind of playing into my kind of really, you know, I didn't want to have a jazz violin and then a classical mm. violin anymore. And yeah. this was for me an important thing, I think emotionally and mentally. Mm-hmm. It was kind of maybe a finally at a certain point in my life saying, you know what, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. I am, I'm both of these people. Uh-huh. Both of these things are, are part of my, my musicianship and they've never been separate. I've only been imagining that they run on parallel tracks, but they never yeah. have been. And um, I want to represent that on my instrument. Yeah, you know, for the time being, and I'm I've gone through that phase now for about a decade, and now you know I now my five string. Well, I had a I had this electric five string that Eric made back in you know after after the. Uh, I mean, this was when I was probably in my early twenties, I guess. Yeah, late teens, early twenties, um, and then, uh, gosh, maybe ten years after that, I got an acoustic five string that Eric made. So Mm -hmm. then I had my classical violin and then I had this acoustic five string that Eric made that was fantastic. Um, But then as I wasn't playing the five string and I was concentrating on just the regular violin, Mm -hmm. um, the five string was just sitting there. It was kind of sad. And I sort of went through this phase for a long time and then got interested in, you know, the possibility of taking this approach that I'd been working on with myself and taking it back to other instruments. So now I have this acoustic six string that, that Eric made that, um, is really, really sweet. And, uh, it has a low F. So it's, you know, basically the range of a guitar, you know, give, you know, minus a half step Mm -hmm. or plus a half step. And, uh, it's really, you know, I don't even know what to what to call it. It's like a it's like a shoulder gamba, or something like that, <laughs> you know. And that's that's a lot of fun. And I haven't recorded anything with it, but I'm I'm sort of now developing some stuff with that too. Oh, cool. Um, but anyway, that's the the pickup stuff. I use Eric's pickups. Um, mm-hmm. I, I use his pickups because to me, they are the they are the most natural sounding pickup with the least amount of signature. Um. You know, I mean, anytime you record a direct pickup, you're still going to be able to tell that it's a direct pickup. But um, even of the good bridge pickup things, I mean, like the bags pickup, you know, is a, is a good solution for some people that, you know, want to get into that. And it's really mm-hmm. well made. Um, it definitely has a certain sound. Mm, yeah. um, and, and that's, you know, neither good nor bad. It depends on what, you know, where you're coming from. Yeah. And Eric's pickup to me is is the one that sounds the most like the instrument that it's on right if i could put it that way yeah so i play his pickups um i'm using these preamps by this company in colorado called grace design and Uh i've been waiting my whole amplified life for somebody to to make a preamp like this um and no knock on the ones that i had used in the past but um and there's there's definitely there's one by Fishman and one by Bags that I think both work really great and you know I I would also be satisfied to use but when Grace started making these uh, the Alex and the Felix uh, preamp you know DI yeah. things um, it just kind of it's just sort of up to the ante um, and the way that they design them. 
their their durability, but also uh, the the actual sound quality and clarity and precision and flexibility of stuff that you can do. Yeah, I mean, it definitely it's they're not. I wouldn't jump in on preamps maybe on one of these, you know. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, well, actually, let me rephrase that. Since they're expensive, I think that it would be a good investment, but there's going to be a learning curve. I'll just say that, you know. Mm-hmm. You just have to learn a lot about sound and a lot mm-hmm. about how violins make sound and and the scientific representation of what constitutes the sound of a violin to really start knowing how to tweak these things. Yeah. And uh, that has been a, a pretty slapdash thing for me over the years. But, you know, if yeah. one thing's for sure, I know now, I know more now than I ever did before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a difficult thing to do. I've had yeah. this, I've, I've chatted about this before, but do you think um, using amplification has changed how you play? The way that I think about it now is that. Um, and this has been great in combining this into one violin for me, uh-huh. is that I realized that it just changes the fundamental nature of how you play. So if you play mm-hmm. a, a violin with a pickup yeah, the way that you would play acoustically... Doesn't sound great. No, no, definitely not. And, you know, this is has everything to do with the limitations of the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but you... it you are so it's definitely worthwhile you know if you're if you're a violinist that's looking to get into amplified sound don't think that you're just going to like stick this thing on your violin and then have everything you know you need to practice with it too to understand that you can't you shouldn't be pressing down into the bow it's hard you know unless you want to get that grainy buzzy sound you know but it all it also opens up this whole other realm of sounds that acoustically don't really come off but are really accentuated with the microscope the Mm -hmm. strange microscope of the pickup on there Mm -hmm. um yeah you know and then you know when you're uh when you're playing acoustically you know if you if you play like you play when you've got a, a pickup on then you know you'll be you'll sound great from about a foot away yeah that's it <laughs> that's the that's the thing i've just I, it's just something that i think a lot of violinists struggle with especially if you do a mixture of of, of acoustic and electric playing I, i'll call i say electric i mean amplified, amplified. using pickup yeah. and it's a bit like it's a bit like it's sort of like acoustic people who play like I get like like jazz manouche players who play that style of guitar. They have a specific technique that they use for their acoustic playing. And then as soon as they get given an electric, they sort of have to change that a bit. And I feel like yes. that is something that violinists forget. I know that it took it's taken probably me, me until about now, which is, you know, I'm 30, to realize that to actually you know, these are two different things. I've got a I've got to actually go between the two or it's just not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, absolutely. It, and I and I guess, you know, uh it's it's not it's not quite as daunting a task, right? You know, because everything in the left hand, I at least I in my opinion is is the same. Sure, yeah. It's really all the right hand. Yeah. Yeah it's it's really all right hand and um so then you know for me if i if i then focus on that you know even a little bit of prep 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, I still I still go through this. You know, uh, this this thing of, for instance, when you're in a loud environment. Yeah. The difficulty with with relaxing. Yeah. Uh, to to know that when you're playing a pickup, you're playing an amplified you know violin with a pickup, yeah. that how hard you're going to press down on the string mm-hmm. or how fast you're going to move your bow or whatever is going to have very, very little yeah. effect on your volume. Yeah. You know? And and my my most comfortable loud amplified performances are when I remember that for a split second, you know, maybe before <laughs> I play, I'll you know, maybe when I'm warming up, you know, in my little 10 minute back in the hallway warm up or something like that. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. it's going to be a loud one. Just, you know, yeah. remember to, to relax and that if you need to, if you're not hearing something, you're not going to get it by pressing down, Yeah, you know, yeah. or, you know, being more vigorous, number one. And number two, the sound under your ear is not the sound. Yeah. I mean, this goes for acoustic and electric, but especially electric is that it's not the same thing. So when you're, especially if you're playing an acoustic violin with a pickup, like like I am, yeah, you've got one thing under your ear, but it's what's coming out of the pickup. You know, there's only one way to really know what that sounds like. You've got to, you've got to hook up, you know, your preamp to an interface, and you've got to record yourself yeah. and tweak your sound. Mm-hmm in that way you know you you have to record yourself or do it in a studio if you've got a lot of extra bread and somebody there to work with you yeah although that's not a bad idea you know can you imagine if there if you if you just if you had like 300 bucks would it be worth it to go in with a great engineer to figure out in a studio the way to get the best sound that you could get and then understand that yeah Uh, yeah yeah, that's a good point Maybe they that'd should. be a that'd be a three hundred dollar lesson that you could use for the rest of your life. Yeah, as a template. Maybe you someone know. should start doing that. Maybe you should do it. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I'm now accepting offers. <laughs> he says it's three hundred dollars. So it's three hundred dollars. Yeah. That's right. Five minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, just send me an MP3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wicked. Sounds good. Bargain. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I was wanting to ask you. Let me just check that out because I wrote it down. Well, I typed it down. Nice. You seem to have a vast knowledge of the history of jazz violin. From when I, I've just, uh, I think I, I've checked out a couple of interviews with you. Um, just you know, as a to 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 get ready for this, and you seem to have a a vast knowledge of the history of jazz violin. How did you get that? Uh, if that is the case, and thank you, that makes me happy to hear somebody say that. Um, uh-huh. Not that I, I imagine myself to be a historian, but it's just because I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. So it's 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 what I do, but it's also been my hobby for a long time. Yeah. I will say that not just in jazz violin, but in jazz, I really. This is going to sound. I hope that this doesn't sound like discouraging, because it shouldn't be, but. I f- it, it disturbs me or I feel kind of sad that a lot of people starting out in jazz now mm-hmm. don't have the benefit of having liner notes. Yeah. And this is, this is bullshit, okay? Yeah. I mean, th- this is something that 
at the very, very least, all of these tech companies certainly have the ability to have an image yeah. of the text. You know, we don't even have to input the text, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, it should be pretty simple. That you can uh, just find, yeah. I mean, come on, you know, I mean, and, and like it's finally true. some services totally like Title and stuff like that are starting to have in very uh, mm. uneven, very spotty ways, starting to have more information, you know. Yeah. You should absolutely... Every recording that you have, you've got to know who the musicians are. Yeah. You should know who the recording engineer is, where it was recorded, and when it was recorded. You should know yeah. this too. I, you should want this information. Totally. How could you not want this information? And I think, I, people I think do. it's okay. Good. Yeah. They. I mean, I would imagine they do. And of course, I guess you can try to jump onto Wikipedia or you know yeah. search for it, and, and and you'll find it. But there's something about, um, you know putting on a recording however you're doing it you know yeah. on, on, you know tape vinyl or cd or whatever and sitting back and being swept up in the sounds and reading these great liner notes yeah i mean it, oh my god yeah I know the, what you mean. just yeah you know what i mean like just the writing style of these people that were the super nerds of, yeah. <laughs> of jazz and stuff like that you know super nerds that were great writers and also you know why you know it's just so wonderful to be you know in touch in some way with a great historian just that type of uh, Mm -hmm. knowledge that uh you know is passed on and and wondered about and and commented upon and, and to read that so um a lot of my jazz violin stuff came from you know reading reading liner notes and figuring that out and i will say that i i actually did learn a lot from the very first book that matt glazer put out i can't remember what it's called but it was like my bible for a while because it's got a picture it, it's not about grappelli though but it has a picture of grappelli on the front is it, was, and of is matt. it mask oh yeah that, i've got that yeah 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 and and that was you know you know, there's tons of stuff about Grappelli, but there's also a lot of stuff. Smith, Joe Venuti, Sven yeah. and Jean-Luc Ponty, including a great interview with Ponty yeah. you know, in the 70s. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, so that book, I think that for me and, I mean, you know, for, for anybody, like, I guess regardless of uh, the, the technology that you're getting this information from, if you're fascinated with some aspect of something somebody's playing you get into stuff smith yeah just do a deep dive um i think that one of the things that's great about the liner notes i'm kind of just spontaneously reflecting on right now is that a lot of liner notes did have an element of a short little interview where people would drop a name yeah you know, or even sometimes the writer of the liner notes would make some sort of a musical reference, drop a name, and it was always like something that you were supposed to know, but you didn't know it. Yeah. That's how I found out about Hank Mobley. You right. know, that's how I found out about Zbigniew Zeifert. Right. Yeah, I found okay. out about Zbigniew Zeifert in the, in the weirdest way, the totally weird. I just have to tell you the story because yeah. this is like really weird. So I was going through... Uh, uh, a D.D.A. Lockwood fa- uh, infatuation thing. I because yeah. I I had not been able to hear any of his stuff until I was probably in my late teens. It was right, not right. in print. It was not available in the United States at all. And I heard his recording of Autumn Leaves. Oh yeah. And not only what he played, 
which was totally killing. And the band is ridiculous. You know, Tony Williams is playing drums. Mm-hmm. Gordon Beck. Oh, yeah. Um, who was playing bass? It may have even been like Neil's sending us to Peterson. I, I think it like was. It's definitely someone who had that, who has that sound, um, who has that sort of very, well, the, 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 it's, it's quite like, it feels like there's a lot of reverb or something on it. It feels like it, it yeah. rings out a lot. That record, New World. Yeah. I, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great record. And, um, so, so, I was reading, okay, so I was trying to find stuff. That was the, the only way that I heard that is that this cello player friend of mine had somehow come across when he was, I don't know, he was traveling somewhere outside of Lexington. He'd come across this this CD that said Jazz Club Violin. Mm-hmm. And it was this weird thing of this thing between Verve and Sony, but only in Europe. And I think actually, no, I, actually, I don't think it was Europe. I think it was in Japan. Yeah. Um, where they did this series of like jazz club vocals, jazz club guitar, jazz club piano, jazz yeah. club violin. Right. And um, it just happened to have been an amazingly curated compilation CD. I mean, cool. it, it's, it's man, everybody should go get that. Or, you know, maybe uh, if somebody hasn't created a Spotify playlist, I could, I could recreate this. Okay. Um, it could because it has everything from like the beginning, like you know Venuti playing Wildcat, up through it even has Zyphert. Right. It has the it has the duo with Zyphert and Cecil McBee playing Stillness from the Man of the Light record. Yeah. And you know all this it's got uh, you know uh, Ponty playing Bebop man. Wow. You know that's the first time I ever I knew ton I thought that I knew a lot about Jean Luc Ponty I had mm-hmm. never heard him I'd never heard his Round Midnight. Oh really? Recording? No, because right, yeah. it was not. It was not in print. It was not wow. possible for me to hear these things. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just so amazing. You know, now, you know, people have the opposite problem, and that you know, there's probably too much. too much information. You know, for me, I didn't have enough information. Hmm. So whenever I, uh, maybe this answers a little bit more of your initial question, which is when I would get a little snippet of information, I was starving for it. Yeah, you know, so I I would be I would be voracious and I would try to find everything. So the D.D. Lockwood story, briefly, if I if I may, is that yeah. uh, I started trying to just like order records, and I um I got there, you know, I was like, oh, okay, there's this a record that came out later, and it's called Out of the Blue or something like that, and I like I can get it from this record collector. And I had to order it. I think I had to order it from Germany, and it cost me forty dollars or something yeah. ridiculous. I don't even know. <laughs> and I got I got this record, and it was it was a. Uh, I, I check it out. I open it up, and there was like a a pamphlet, like a printed one fold pamphlet. Somehow I got a copy of Didier Lockwood's like press or like his press pack i got his press pack this was a promo record that his his management or his booking agents had been mailing out and somebody got it in the record bin and still had this thing in there so there was this whole bio of him on all this information it was printed in english and i hadn't i didn't know any of this stuff yeah and uh in this interview he mentions that he had just played this festival with uh, with Jean Luc and 
with Zbigniew Seifert. Yeah. And that he had never been, you know, so kind of, you know, blown away yeah. by, you know, anything, you know, in that way. And, and this was obviously when, when he was in his deep uh, infatuation and impression with yeah. his biggie and his playing and his music. Um, so anyway, that's just a weird story of like, you know, it wasn't really until I read that in this weird interview, which wasn't even in liner notes. It was in like a supplement in this record that that planted this seed in my mind and I couldn't let it go. And I had, yeah. and I was always wondering about it. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Hey, I just found have you, recently. I found. Um, have you heard? How is it? Harry Lukowski or Harry Lukowski? Yeah. Yep. Jesus, that was mental. So, I really, man. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. Do, so, do you, you know the story about that cat? So he like writes all his solos, doesn't he? And he learned well, from all he, these. Well, he did, he didn't write them actually. Those okay, solos yeah. were were written by Barry Harris and Bob Brookmeyer. Really? Yes. Really. Yeah, that's Whoa. who wrote those solos. That's why, you know, the stuff is just... It's, it's proper, it's, you know? It's incredible. So another crazy thing about Harry Lukowski is, you know, before he was playing under the baton of Toscanini in New York, he was growing up in Kentucky. <laughs> right. Ah. Which which really blew me away. I mean, because, I mean, you know, he was he was coming out of it, you know, in the dark ages. Right, yeah. Um. He's also the, <laughs> as far as I know, the first guy to record with the baritone violin. Okay. The, the baritone strings. Oh right. Well, I thought I'm. I'm sure I heard something that I thought was a viola. But yeah. Was, no, that was that, that was the bar. That was the violin with the berry strings. Yep. Wow. And he had to have those specially made. And uh, you know, since I moved to New York, you know, 13 years ago, uh, I've come into all these people, all these musicians that had contact with this guy, and this guy was an absolute really? legend. Legend. Yeah. Um, he was just. Uh, I mean, every little story that I hear about this guy just makes me like him, you know, even more. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was kind of like the Les Paul of the violin. Okay. You know? um, one thing that I'm fairly certain of, which I believe is maybe even, I don't know how much of it said, but uh, he didn't really improvise. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's but but he had he had this ear for you know a certain way of playing stuff, and of course he was just a tremendous violin player. Yeah, yeah, um, totally, really tremendous. amazing. I should really I should transcribe those transcriptions, and yeah. they're actually on the internet. They're on the internet, like yeah, the, in the actual writing. Oh, what the actual uh, someone's the actual handwritten oh, really? stuff from Barry Harris. Yeah, there's some some JPEGs Where? you can find that were on a web a tribute website that somebody put up. I don't know if it's still up there because I I, I grabbed these there. like okay well I I'll, I'll send them to you, you just got to remind do. me I got to find them first they're somewhere on my hard drive right that's crazy um, but yeah with all those you know up in like f fourth fifth position yeah you know sixteenth uh, note triplet yeah bebop licks just you know shredding yeah yeah I I I heard it and I instant actually I think I heard round midnight. And I instantly was like, "What's he doing?" I wanted, and I, you know, I instantly tried to take it down. And it's, I mean, it's a lot of it is. It seems like it's all quite violinistic, actually. Not, you know, yeah. it seems like Barry. Because I, I thought it really. I was sure that um, 
that he, it had been written by Harry Lukowski because, or however I say his name, because it, it, listening to it and trying some of the stuff, it does feel very violinish, violiny or violinistic. It, it, yeah, I don't know. He must have done it with. He must. It must have been doing it together. I think that that's that's what happened. In fact, I think I remember even seeing a picture of him. You know, kind of like going over a, a, a thing with either Bob Brookmeyer or Barry Harris, but. Wow. You know, and then maybe you know, for some subsequent records, maybe he did start writing his own stuff. But yeah, you know, I mean, he was doing all you know, and then he's like playing Mahler, you know, yeah. like you know, and like later that afternoon, and then yeah. you know, experimenting with stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I say uh, you know, Les Paul because he obviously had a real fascination also with the technique. I mean, he was, as yeah. far as I know, also the first violinist to ever multi-track himself. Oh, is that is that is that what that is? That's not a band then. That's not like yeah. a, a string. No, no, I, I'm, right. I'm, I, that's him multi-tracking. You know, which is you know at the that's at the advent of that even being possible. Um, and that's exactly that's what Les Paul started doing. It's the thing um, that I've got the Stringsville. Okay, yeah, I think that Stringsville actually came out a little earlier than that, but maybe oh, really? it's fifty-eight. But yeah, I mean, I've, it was in the fifties, but it was like pretty early on it's crazy man yeah yeah, yeah man harry lukowski but i i'll never forget that one of the first i was playing some rehearsal at the the local 802 in new york the musicians mm-hmm. union hall where still a lot of you know rehearsals will happen and stuff like that mm-hmm. when i first moved and i remember talking to this baritone sax player that was telling me stories about harry lukowski and it was yeah like, man, it's incredible wow that's cool yeah, it's funny that. Um, I was gonna say to you, there seems with there seems to be more. I guess it's just the U.S. is like this, but the more there seems to be more jazz violinists in the U.S. and there seems to be more jazz violinists playing modern jazz in the U.S. than there is in say Europe. I might be talking rubbish. Maybe some people are gonna be really annoyed with me saying that, but it does seem that there's a healthier scene of jazz violinists in the U.S. Why do you think that might be? Hmm. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, I could posit some, <laughs> you know, things. You know, maybe you know. In one sense, the in the U.S., you know, we're just geographically removed in a certain way from the deepest traditions of the instrument. So yeah, um, you know, there there's something to do with that. There's also been because of of Matt Glazer and David Baker uh-huh. uh, having these, you know, the first jazz string programs. Yeah, okay. Uh, for as long as they have been, that you know, they had people that studied with them that then started teaching and then yeah. having their own students on and on and on. Um, I think that that uh, you know could be could be part of the reason. Yeah. Um, I think though that I think that the whole notion of jazz string programs is something that I still I mean and this is this is hilarious because I'm in in a way I'm sort of being a hypocrite because I'm teaching jazz violin at Temple University. <laughs> but but part one of the things that I talked about before I I started doing that uh, with the director, Terrell Stafford, who's this incredible trumpet player, plays in the Vanguard Orchestra and, you know, has tons of records out on his own and is super badass. Um, 
is that I, in the, in this kind of, you know, academic setting of learning jazz, mm -hmm. um, on one hand, it, it's very helpful for, you know, a violinist to congregate with other violinists to get together violinistic things. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to do that. Yeah. But in terms of speaking uh, a universal language, which is really what the language of jazz is, when you group together, um, like, I'll say this, like, even with there being all of the great jazz violin players out there right now, and with the fact that Zbigniew Seifert and, uh, you know, Jean-Luc Ponty and Stuff Smith and, yeah. uh, you know, have, you know, left these, these legacies, that if you really, if you really want to be a great, articulate, uh, thoughtful grounded jazz musician that happens to play the violin you have to not be stuck in in a in a click of jazz yeah. string playing yeah and it's uh it's seductive to people that especially are coming out of the tra the classical tradition because you know that's what it's like to be in an orchestra section. And yeah. that's what it's like when you're uh, in, in uh, college or you're at the conservatory and you're just, you know, hanging out with violin players and you show up and do your violin thing. Yeah. Um, but it's because everything that you're saying is sort of preordained yeah. on your instrument and you're showing up to sort of fulfill a role. Yeah. So the thing that I've always been really wary of is violin players not uh, availing themselves of the exposure to other instruments and playing with the other instruments and trading ideas and developing ideas and yeah. language and vocabulary with those other instruments. Okay, yeah. um, so while there are a lot of people in the United States doing uh, stuff that's that's maybe not like jazz manouche or, or yeah. doing a grappelli thing, yeah. of, although there are a whole bunch oh, yeah, that, is, that do yeah. that too, um, a lot of the other stuff comes very much out of the the new grass thing yeah yeah you know and uh i when i was younger i was i was kind of dark on that and right. mostly maybe because of where i was coming from mm -hmm. you know coming from kentucky and having my own uh baggage <laughs> yeah. you know is really you know where <laughs> that's all from i'm thankfully i think at a place where um i can really appreciate once again, the 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 brilliance and just you know inspiring uh, great stuff that comes out of all that. I just I just hung out for a week with Daryl Anger, oh, yeah. who was one of the first people that I transcribed after Grappelli. I remember oh, transcribing cool. with that Marantz tape recorder mm -hmm. his solo break on a night in Tunisia off the first right. Turtle Island record. Yeah, and you know, so you know, I I had to kind of like. I had to reject that direction, which uh -huh. was uh, pulling me very strongly, I sure. felt, uh, at the time that I was going into college. Um, that's, just, that's just kind of a personal thing. But uh -huh, yeah, yeah. There, it's, it's a whole kind of subgenre of music that exists. Yeah, you know? sure. I would say there's also a lot of people that say that they're jazz violinists or that other people say they're jazz violinists. And if you were to, you know actually listen to what they're playing you'd be like well it's not really they're not you know i mean first yeah. of all what does that even mean you know yeah, i yeah, mean yeah. saying jazz violinist is like saying classical violinist you know? yeah sure 
Yeah. It's a, it's, it's so such a broad thing that it, it, it doesn't say that much, but it says, okay, maybe coming out of some sort of an improvisational language that has, mm-hmm. uh, you know, comes from the blues and comes from North America yeah, and co- and from this convergence of these cultures at this time in very broad strokes, but it could yeah. be you know anything. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But yeah, j- you know, jazz. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. No, I I'm just trying to, com- <laughs> you know, trying to actually answer the <laughs> or, or finish my my thought about you know that. I, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of incredible you know kind of modern more modern players or contemporary players of a certain language coming out of like poland of course and yeah you know yeah germany and you know various places but but also the uk i mean there's definitely more people now you know there's more people than ever sure out there playing um and i it's so great that uh, a lot of the hang-ups and a lot of the uh instrumental prejudices that may have been there in the past are, are just kind of becoming a non-issue, which is the whole point anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, in terms of, I guess the second part of my, my thought about, you know, that in terms of the way that people are experiencing music and, you know, how more and more people are, learning how to play via YouTube and college programs. Yeah. I can't help but think is a negative, but it's also it's 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 just time and it's the way of the world and you know. Yeah. As Joni Mitchell said, something's lost and something's gained <laughs> in living every day. Yeah, it's true. You know. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure that you know the same thing was was uh Probably there were people that felt that it was sad that I was able to slow down a thing with a Marantz tape recorder yeah. and not have that experience of being forced to drop the needle on the record. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. It altered my experience in that my experience would be different than Sonny Rollins trying to transcribe. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, like w- when you got the technology to be exact... Mm-hmm. as opposed to cats that would transcribe by dropping the needle on the record yeah. until the record wore out. Maybe some of those slight imperfections or, you know, little things that got by are what contributed to their individual approach. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Definitely. In everything, in everything. Yeah. It's the same with everything, isn't it? As in like, yeah. just, just having the, just having the internet. It's, you know we used to just have to like the only, the only you know the only way you could send information was on a horse <laughs> and, <laughs> and now we can just get it or you a know, bird d- yeah but it must change the way we think and and like and interact with people yeah and uh and learn stuff i guess yeah yeah um one thing i'd still like i mean we've gone quite we've gone for quite a while but you are you in a rush to leave no Okay, cool. I love talking. Yeah, I like to talk. Um, Snarky Puppy, how did you get involved with those guys? I got involved with Snarky Puppy through my friend and uh, close friend and, and musical compatriot, John Dietemeyer, drummer, great drummer. 
lives in Chicago, is from Chicago, went to school at North Texas, yeah. which is a, a big you know jazz program in the United States and has yeah. been since the beginning of jazz education. Yeah. And John was actually the first drummer in Snarky Puppy. Yeah. And um, I didn't know that much about him, and they'd only been playing when John was in school. They were just playing around Denton, Texas, yeah, um, which is where University of North Texas is. Um, I met Mike League, uh, the the yeah. leader of Snarky Puppy, because he was trying to, you know, branch out and starting to, you know, try trying to book tours outside of his area, and I think a lot of it, you know because of what Pat Martino said to me in that lesson, I had sort of become determined that, you know, I wasn't going to wait around anymore. I was going to start trying to do this myself. So I was starting to book tours in the Midwest, in the United States, from Chicago, basically down to Kentucky, you know, or from Chicago over to New York, whatever it was like somewhat drivable. Yeah. Um, And so uh, Mike had contacted John, you know, because he, you know, saw that he'd been, you know, doing some of these gigs, touring around, trying to get Snarky Puppy up to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And basically we had a phone conversation connected by John, just sort of trading ideas and, you know, trading contacts, basically. Yeah. And that was how I got uh, my first chance to uh, do opening sets for Snarky Puppy. And I got to play with them. And uh, that's how it all started out. Right, yeah. And so, so then the first record I played on with Snarky Puppy was, I believe, the second record. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the one, it was the first one that Bill Lawrence played on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will always remember this because really the first Snarky Puppy tune that I ever recorded was, was Bill's tune, 34 Klezma. Right. Um, and this was also at exactly the same time that I'd started playing with Stanley Clark. And so I was... Yeah. I was kind of like I was I I was in New York now at this point, and uh, you know, kind of starting to go out and do different stuff. And I was I would come back from playing with Stanley, and then I would I would uh, Mike would fly me down to Dallas, and I'd do some stuff, you know, record on a bunch of different projects with different bands, and then kind of start working on some of this stuff with Mike. Yeah. Um, that's how that's how you know I I met him and uh. I played on, I've played on, the the records of Snarky that I have not played on were uh, the first one that they did in Europe. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, that was recorded, I think, exactly in the same month that my daughters were born. Ah. Um, And I didn't play on the uh, family dinner things that they did with like the the vocalists. Um, Yeah. I I hope I do play on one of those, one, one of these times, but... I'm I'm on all the other ones, mm-hmm. including the the latest one, Culture Vulture, and we're about to go into the studio in a couple weeks, uh, and to do the next one, we're gonna we're going down to the same studio down in in Texas, and yeah. we're gonna be down there for for two weeks this time, just in the studio, yeah, uh, creating the record. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I've heard that. Um they have quite a interesting process as to how 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 put to, they put together or how you would put together a record with with Snarky Puppy. Is that right? Um well, I think it's about to get even more interesting. But yes, I'll just say like one thing about the music and this is the case with Stanley Clark and also the case with Snarky Puppy is that 
there's no sheet music ever yeah. at any at any step of the process. Um it's not it's not valued and it's not welcome. <laughs> and <laughs> if good. you if you yeah, and if you if you have to make your own chart for yourself or something as long as you keep it to yourself, you know, it's cool, but um you know, it's it's beautiful <laughs> to have to to you know, force yourself to get that music without sheet music because yeah. one of the things is you know once you do it in that way you pretty much have it memorized forever yeah, yeah. you know or at least it's going to come back it may, it'll yeah. get rusty but you know it'll come back a lot faster yeah um mike is uh is mike writes most of the stuff mm-hmm. but but what he does is then he'll he'll sort of create the tune and he'll have ideas about the parts that he might hear the horns playing or might want me to play or something like that yeah and you kind of you know he gives you the freedom to kind of take it to make it your own certain things he'll be very specific about sure really really detail oriented about it and other things he'll open up for suggestions and it's it's a really organic Mm -hmm. thing but you know ultimately when it comes down to it um especially with mike his level of um attention to detail and he's he's really fastidious about exactly how the stuff is played with like the exact timing and the exact inflection yeah um and you know it's i i guess it's also great to not have sheet music in front of you because you can immediately get into that stuff yeah you know in the in the part of like really hearing how you're playing it or how you're approaching this note or coming from that note or where you're putting it in the beat um Mm -hmm. that uh you know it kind of frees you up to do that a little bit more okay um so um to be honest i actually think i need to go what (laughs) time is it what time what is the time it's uh for me it's nearly seven and i think i've got a yeah i've probably got to leave in about an hour and uh I don't be late for your gig, in. man. I don't want to be. Le- I don't want to leave in the state I'm in right now. <laughs> Thankfully, you can't see me. But yeah. um, it's been really nice to to chat to you. And, man, uh, thank you so much, yeah. man. I'm, it's been really nice talking with you. Yeah. Um, thank you for indulging me. It was an yeah. indulgence. Well, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, and you've got some cool stuff to say. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure talking with you, and I can't wait to meet you and to play with you. Thank you very much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. I have been Matt Holborn, and you have also been listening to Zach Brock. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I don't think I've got anything very important to say, really. Just uh, find us on all the places that podcasts are because we're there i promise you um also if you give us a give us a give us some give us a rating on itunes i think most of you listen to um to this on itunes and if you like the podcast could you please give us a rating if you don't like the podcast please don't give us a rating but if you like it please give us five stars and say something nice because it helps us come up um in searches etc um, thanks to Shirtler for sponsoring us uh, and uh, yeah just uh, thanks for listening as well alright goodbye